Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today, we have the CEO and co-founder of G2Ops, Tracy Gregorio. Tracy, welcome. Hi, Rob. Glad to be here today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, one of the things that I'm always interested to talk to with fellow co-founders of small businesses is what really made you want to start and work in a company that works for the federal government or the Department of Defense? It's really been a lifelong journey to get here. So after lots of interesting jobs, and I worked for the government years ago and then was a defense contractor programmer, but I never had worked on the business side in defense contracting. And it is very tough, which I know we'll talk about today. But, you know, we really wanted to look at system engineering and the way it's being done. With We, we were really focused on the Navy and how a lot of things are deployed and maybe they don't work. A lot of things are built in silos. And we really thought it was 10 years ago, this is year 10. We thought, wow, there might be a niche there for the model-based system engineering methodology. So it was really just loved the military. I'm in Virginia and grew up around it. My dad worked for the Naval Safety Command, so always big data, making decisions. So it's really... It was really to support the military and take all the experience I've gathered many years. My husband's a retired submariner, partnered with him. His name's Bob. And then Kevin Esser had been a defense contractor for many years and information assurance and cyber. And we just said, hey, there's a niche here. Let's put it together and build a business. So that's how we got started. And uh, you mentioned it's been about 10 years. What is one of the things over the last 10 years that that surprised you a little bit? Maybe let's start with the positive good surprises first <laughs> as working with the DOD and federal government. The problems we're solving are very interesting with your business. It's the complexity, it's even hard to explain what it is we do sometimes, both our companies, because of the complexity that we're helping them try to manage and actually seeing change happen over the years and systems get delivered on time, more in line with cost schedule performance has been the most rewarding piece. It's hard to bring new ideas to the government because they're so big and hard, hard to make changes, but that's been the most rewarding part to see the adoption grow throughout the services. Now, what's some of the things that working with the federal government and the DOD that's hard or challenging for small businesses like G2Ops? When we first started, of course, we didn't have any prime contract. We had to start with as a subcontractor. You're out there meeting people. How can I help you? You might get a job for a week. You're just hustling, trying to bring in revenue and establish your name, your brand, you know, what it is you do. That's the hardest part. It's very competitive, all right? There's many people out there that have an interest or want to be in the same area you are. Some of the big companies, they want, they want to lead. 
in these areas too, especially system engineering. The first three years, we were a subcontractor. We did a little ship repair work in the Norfolk area, some cybersecurity consulting. Lockheed Martin brought us in for some work. This is still a customer today. Really appreciative of the trust they gave us. And then year, the third year in 2016, we won our first prime contract. So I think learning how tough it is to compete, put that together, that proposal, establish all your rate. Like I said, I had worked in the defense industry, but on the technical side, as a computer scientist, never on the contracting. So I had to learn about rates and GNA and overhead and fringe and everything and putting that together. That was the first lesson. Like, wow, it's a lot to compete in this field. Yeah. Three years is obviously, it, it actually, I think, fast for the defense industry. So, but it's still a testament to what small companies have to go through. What was your route? It, what was that first contract that you got that ended up where you could work as the prime? Yeah, it was PMW 770, which is Navor San Diego. So we had one person out there in San Diego, but when I did work for the government, Naval Undersea Warfare Center, I was with the, supporting the submarine service. My husband's retired. My other partner, Kevin, had supported submarines. So we were very interested in focusing on submarines. We were very passionate about the role they play with our country, with strategic deterrent. It's very interesting. And then all the communication systems and how they're managed ashore, afloat, are managed by PMW 770. And they're the integrator of a lot of communication technology. And that was the perfect place to bring the MBSC methodology to them. So we had been doing some work on some subcontracts around them, submitted a bid for the security engineering piece. And that was our first contract we won. And then we went on to win a system engineering contract to support them. And, and have since won, a, they combined the two and we want to recompete. And we're now in getting ready to enter year three. So there'll be another competition in two years. We're already saying, what do we need to do? Anything we need to improve on? Because people would love that. Other people would love that work. And then once you get established, I don't know, it gives you, it's a good feeling to win something in a tough competition. A lot of people want to dethrone. <laughs> and take you out. So you're always watching the competitors and what can you do better, listening to the customer. And, and then it just, the secret's really been doing good work and working closely with the customer and delivering on what we said we were going to do. Now, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges between that sort of prime sub relationship and trying to deliver value to the government? Yeah, you know, as a subcontractor, you work for the prime. That's your customer, even though, so you just, you have to serve them well, just like you would if you were a direct government customer. And we tried to grow our base of primes we worked for. And that's where we, about half our work is we're a subcontractor. So we'd like supporting the primes, the Northrop Grumman, the Raytheon, whoever. And we do a lot of speaking engagements and really want to be thought leaders in this area. And that's when they're like, oh, that I could use that help. But it's funny, some of these big companies, we laugh, they'll have 75,000 employees and they'll need us to do something small, but it's niche, our costs are reasonable. 
and they come back to us time and time again. So that's been very beneficial for us to maintain those relationships and grow. And then they bring you on teams when they're bidding on work. We can, we, part of our growth strategy is who we're going to team with in some of the large competitions. And then when we are bidding, it's which, who do we want on our team? Because we want to bring some of those primes with us to show that we have a bench and the depth and breadth needed to win. So that's, it's really just been relationships. And you mentioned that your focus and really passion when you started to get involved with this work was really in model space systems engineering. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about maybe where the, the DOD and federal government were when you first started on this journey and maybe a little bit about where the government and DOD is today? Yeah. So like I said, it was a little over 10 years ago and some customers, they were thought leaders. There'd be a few government people that said, Hey, I need to try something different. The workload is too great. I can't manage this complexity on spreadsheets, Word documents, or PowerPoints anymore. So finding those leaders in the government has been key to us and then helping introduce them to the technology, get used to it, training. And then now we're starting to shoot forward 10 years. Now we're seeing contracts are requiring it. Model B system engineering be part of it. Several of our large primes that we work with has, have brought us in to help on the proposal teams to even talk about model B system engineering. So we're starting to see that shift. The private sector's been using it a long time. Amazon, FedEx, <laughs> the healthcare industry. That's, that's how they know if you order this, you can get a package in X days or minutes or hours because they really use big data and technology and not siloed like we tend to see in the federal space. How important is it to have those government thought leaders when you're working on a project? Extremely important. As a small business, who we hire is critical. Here, A players only. We look for them, we take our time, we find the right people. I'd rather have no one than the wrong person. And then we find these A players attract other A players. But sometimes in the government, you know, somebody might've got a promotion because they've been there a while and, or they don't want to change. They'll look in the face and say, I don't want to change. I'm like, but you're drowning in engineering changes. You can't keep up with, unless you change methodologies and it's, no one's going to lose their job. There's plenty of work, plenty of technology that, that we're bringing forward and especially in defense, but finding those, we glom onto them. We love those smart leaders that let us do our job and really treat us like consultant. That's what we look for. But it's funny because sometimes I'm like, oh, I hope they like their job. Hope they stay for a while. But I, I, we have some great customers, but then a lot of turnover. And just in our little air sphere may not be happening across. DOD, but in our sphere, we're seeing a lot of turnover and it's hard for them to compete with the private sector too. The big companies are luring, luring good people out of the government. We're looking for those passionate people that want to be public servants and really serve the DOD. And the government from a bureaucracy and process perspective mm -hmm. think that they just, they palm for the money and they work with the requirements documents. 
And then magically from requirements and funding and the document itself, they can just push it out to industry and industry will be able to execute on, on, on those set of documents. How much of a difference does having the right person on the government side make when looking at the things that you've worked on? Is it as severe and drastic as not enough to say that things won't be successful or is it 20 or 30% deltas between person A and person B? No, I think it's drastic. I really do. That's been my observation. So we, you might be a great engineer, but you also need to understand how contracts work. You may not be writing the contract, but you've got to understand the process and how the funding is going to flow to the contractor and staying on top of all of that. It's really burdensome that I've seen for a lot of them. And maybe that's why they move on or change. They really are like running a whole mini business. A lot of them have that burden and may don't, maybe don't have a lot of great support staff. But the ones that understand it or know how to use or have taken the time to learn, hey, contracts works for me, the program manager, not the other way around. <laughs> Those have been the most successful that we've seen. What are common things that you see the government doing or asking for approaches that, that actually end up hurting the government rather than helping? I think, and I think this, I don't think taxpayer probably knows this, even probably members of Congress <laughs> because of what it takes to run a small business. But the way the funding flows is very awkward. You'll say, oh, here, I plan to do this for you for X amount of dollars. And they'll give you a one-year contract with four option years, traditionally. So basically, they commit to you for a year, and you'll get your money in increments throughout the year. And you're always, hey, I'm getting ready to run out of money. I get time to send another tranche. And it's really because they're not given their full funding because it takes so long to pass a budget now. And, and to move money around takes time. We're supposed to have a budget approved by October 1st. That's what our constitution says. And then this year it was delayed month. And, and that just, like you said, it goes downhill and spiral all the way down to us. So you get your money in, I call it dribs and drabs, and you constantly have to remind them and stay on top of it. And that's something we have to spend money and people to manage that piece. So it's causing extra cost to us. So we have to charge more just because we have to have to have so much oversight over that. So just to ensure there's, it's continues to flow and there's no blips. In, in terms of impacts, is it just the cost that you see as the major impact or is there other issues that either funding or contract complications create for small businesses? Well, it's, it's the three pillars. The cost schedule performance we focus on and, uh, oh, we had planned to send X amount and because of some cuts or some other priorities in our program office, we need to make some changes. So that may affect your schedule, which may have then affect how, how the performance turns out originally. So you have to be very flexible in defense contracting. So it's constantly relooking at priorities, making sure you're on the same page. 
lot of communication with the customer, but it can affect the schedule and then the ultimate performance also. What recommendations do you have for PMs to, to be more friendly to small businesses in not only that situation, but all situations? I think what did they need? And every, all of them are different. <laughs> A lot of them are different. What reports can we give you? Help, how can we help you help us? We can come up, we have reports that we develop internally for use. We can, you know, tweak them, structure them. What type of timeline do you want? So understanding the, the PM's responsibility, their area, because you're probably just a small piece of money that they're managing. They're probably a very big portfolio. So we want to be the low maintenance group. That's always our theme. We want to be low maintenance, give them the information they need so that they can serve all their customer effectively. And there's been a lot of recent talks on trying to expand the defense industrial base as mm -hmm. people had started to see some of the impacts of really a consolidated defense industrial base over the last 30, 30 years or so. What makes it hard? Because there's really no, very fewer off the top of my head. I can't think of a single example of really a, a new defense prime emerging and becoming and rivaling any of the big five or so. What are the aspects that make expanding and broadening the defense industrial base so difficult? I think it's, it's the rules. We have 1% of our revenue is private sector. Okay. <laughs> and cybersecurity services. And we really just help local small businesses with their cybersecurity posture. But the rules you have to follow and understanding them, the, the FAR, the DFARS, we are audited every year. Timesheets have to be filled out daily. They could pull up and come in and inspect us anytime. Being set up for that takes money. You have to have systems, technology. So if you have a great idea and want to start a company, and serve the Department of Defense, it's difficult. And then if you have to have clearances or certain types of facilities, which we do, those are just additional investments that are needed and people to manage them. So planning all that, you know, as your revenue increases, what additional investments do I want to make so that I can continue to compete in this space? But I think understanding government contracting, we worked with great attorneys to begin with, to help navigate some of their, even filling out the SAM <laughs> system for award management is very intimidating. We have to update it every year. So you do, we all do. And it's a very intimidating system and questions they ask and things like that. So some companies are like, no, I'm not going, I'm not going there. I don't want to deal with it. As the companies like yourselves that have made those investments and gotten over that hurdle or valley of death, what, what limits companies to continue to grow after this point? So once you've, I know for yourselves, you're still considered a small business, even right. though you're probably most Americans are probably called a medium sized business standards. It's still considered small as company look, looks to continue to increase in revenues and growth and really try to scale their organizations. Like, what do you see as the primary blockers for why there hasn't been a defense company started in, say, the 90s and that have then grown to, to rival some of the larger defense primes? 
So you may have interest in certain customers that you want to serve or compete on work on, say, Department of Homeland Security or Department of Energy or the Coast Guard, but they have different ways that they do contracting. So you have to learn each one. What system do I need to get onboarded to before I can even bid? Some of them check you out, check out your company, your rates before you bid on things to allow you to bid, vet you. So uh, navigating through that slows down your growth, you know, how to understand that. So we have multiple contracts with the Navy and they're all in different, through different organizations, Seaport Next Gen, GSA, some through the small business office, SBIR. So learning how to manage all that and navigate when you want to grow is something you have to plan for. There's been a lot of changes from a technology perspective, or at least what appears to be a lot of changes in artificial intelligence and what people perceive as the impacts of AI across both the commercial world and then also within the federal government and DOD. How impactful of a technology do you see AI becoming over the next two, three, and four years for your and other people's defense and government customers? Oh, we're excited to embrace it. And I, I hope the customers are too. So we're trying to see how can we use it to be, gain efficiencies in our company, number one. And then two, what technologies can we bring to our customers to help serve them better? This isn't my quote, but I've been saying it. It's, it's not that you're going to get replaced by AI, but you're going to get replaced by someone who's using it. So we have, as a company, we've determined we're going to try to stay on top of it, learn it, use it, and see how we can bring it, bring it to our customers. But there's a lot of cyber challenges with it too. And can you talk a little bit about the overlap between model-based systems engineering tools and AI and where you see those two seemingly disparate and different technologies starting to diverge a little bit? With, with modeling, it's just for your audience, it's not 3D modeling, it's data modeling. So creating a digital twin replica of systems and how they're connected, hardware, software, cables, everything, down to the pin that the customer needs us to. And you can use artificial intelligence now to generate some of those models. It can feed it information. Before we had to write a lot of scripts. And that's our thing, speed to deployment, driving down costs. We've created standards across the company so that we're using this same methodology for all the customers. And if we create a capability for one, say for a cyber analysis, say for reliability analysis, we can reuse them across our customer base. So now we're looking at how can AI help with reliability engineering? Yeah, we do a lot of that for our customers. So we're really in a, a test phase with it, running it in parallel, trying to learn about it ourselves. With current events going on across the world with some additional Chinese aggression going out the South China Sea with Russia's invasion with the Ukraine, do you think the Department of Defense is moving fast enough with small businesses to really make the difference that's required for more modern warfare? No, I think, I think we're moving slow. They, I don't think they're better than us. They steal from us, number one. So they get a head start there and we're, but we can draw on 
each other. I talked about this recently that we're capitalists and great ideas are everywhere. And in a country like China or Russia, they don't have that government's funding, state's funding thing. They're demanding their engineers to develop things where here we may be developing technology that doesn't even, someone may be developing something doesn't even apply or they weren't, they aren't building it for defense, but then we can discover it and bring it in and it actually can improve things. So I think company, small businesses, keeping our eyes open, looking what other companies are doing and bringing those technologies in to DOD is how we can stay ahead of our adversaries. And in thinking through the statement you just made about the government not moving fast enough, what are some of the changes the government would have to do in either policy or process to right the ship and begin moving at the speed that you think is required? I think they try with SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research, Innovative Research, the OTA, different type of contract vehicle. But my observation is it keep falling back on the old way of doing things. And those are good ideas. And it takes program managers with courage to try some of those new contracting vehicles. And they're approved. <laughs> you can, you're allowed to use them. They're different, but they're still competitive, very competitive, both of them. But they help streamline and maybe bring people in that aren't in the defense space right now. So I think they're trying, but I don't see it gaining any momentum right now. So. So it's, it's a commitment to pulling down on things. I'm going to try something. I'm going to try something new or different. And this tool was put in place for a reason. Let me bring it to my program. For some of those PMs that, that might be listening that are trying to decide on their acquisition approach trying to really figure out how much, in some cases, risk they're willing to take to try something differently. What advice or recommendations do you have that might encourage them to head in that direction? One thing you can, they could do, probably like we do, call others that have used that approach. What lessons learned did they use? What boundaries did they put in that helped them manage it successfully? So we, we all call each other small business owners. I need help with this, or I have an accounting question, or I've got this question from an audit. How should mm -hmm. I answer it? I suggest they call others within their own industry and see what, what's been successful, or maybe something didn't work. Maybe stay away from that, executing that way. So that's one thing they could do. And we started this podcast before, before we actually started re recording, joking about some of the horror stories that are involved working with the government over the last 10 years. And of course, I don't, don't want to force you to <laughs> name any names or go into some specifics or anything, but I'd love to hear just from you, some of those unique challenges of being a small business owner and trying to work with the government. Yeah, I think for me, I really tried to connect with the customers personally, face to face. <laughs> I wanted to know, I may not be the direct person delivering the work, but I want them to know I'm engaged. I'm watching their dollars also, because when you do need to call them, if there's an issue, invoice, is it paid in a timely manner? Things like that. 
you know who to call, who is the right person to call. Know the contracting office. Every time we win a contract, introduce myself to the contracting officer, contract administrator, whatever. That's worked for me. I enjoy it also. Honestly, we've had one contract. They missed exercising an option year. Yeah, we're going to do it. You get the notice. And then, oh, I thought they were going to do it. It actually happened to us. I couldn't believe it. Nightmare. Like, like they meant to, and then they yeah. just accidentally didn't. Yeah. And if you missed the date, remind them, or if you missed the date, that's it. So they had to, within 60 days, put out a new contract and send it to us. But then I had people had to find a place to put for 60 days. So that was a nightmare. I hope no one ever goes through. And now as our, as we're growing and the contracts are bigger, we just have one switch over May, from May 11th to May 12th. And my team is like, why is she like, what's happening? And they're like, why is she <laughs> like that? I'm like, trust me. Until I get it in writing, the, the actual contract, we want to know it's in place. And one of the things that you broke up is the unique budget challenges with things like continuing resolutions. In your opinion, do you think the federal budget process is broken? Oh, absolutely. And I wish our politicians could sit in our seat for, come for a week <laughs> or a day to see what we go through. and. I, and that's that stress and delay. You have to keep it from the team a little bit, protect them so they can focus on delivering the work. And we shoulder that for the company, those delays. Oh, there's been a change. And, but the incremental funding we've seen causes so much extra paperwork, delays. A lot of times we're working at risk. You get the, it's called an authority to proceed. Yeah, go ahead. The money's coming. We'll let you know. So it's a very different environment for people to work, that people have to work in these small businesses. So a lot of people may not realize it. What recommendations do you have for either small business owners or people who are start, starting to think about potentially starting a company and working within the space? One, for any small business, the financing piece has to be taken care of. And it's funny you think, oh, there's banks everywhere. If you want to start a business, I can get a loan or I can get a line of credit. No, that's not the case. We had to do a lot of owner financing initially and invoice factoring the first three years before a bank would even talk to us. And so that, you hear cash is king. <laughs> It is. So you have to have money to be able to shoulder the ups and downs that come with a business if you want to keep things running smoothly. So that piece, you've got to get straight ahead of time. What's, what's some recommendations or words of wisdom you wish you could have given yourself? If you could get on a time machine and go back to the early days, what's some advice you wish you would have received earlier? I think since I went into this after working 30 years, I'm getting ready to start year 40. I had already had a lot of bumps and learned a lot in the past. I think surrounding yourself with the best accounting team, attorneys, when there is an HR issue, nipping in the bud, 
finances have to be in order. Banks have expectations. And so I think surrounding yourself with the A team on the, on that side initially would be something I'd probably do a little bit differently. And you mentioned in previous conversations with me the how important it is to hire that A team to hire the right talent. How well do you see small defense companies or even the large defense companies and other companies that work with the federal government? How well do you think they compete for talent across? the tech industry? Uh, what I'm seeing with the engineering teams we've hired now and computer scientists, they like the challenge and the complexity. Like we talked about earlier, these problems that we're trying to solve are complex, hard. A lot of uh, people have pride in the country. They want to serve. But I know that every single one of them could go somewhere else, private sector, let alone another contractor. And we want to treat them well, pay them well. So it's, that's going to be reflected in our rates too. But yeah, I think recruiting top talent. We have a lot of people that have left large businesses to come to our company because their boss or their manager maybe didn't even know who they were. And I think people, everyone wants to make a difference and feel like they're important. Not they're important, but what they're doing is important because we all have to work. And so they want to enjoy it and really do something meaningful and that they can grow in also. And one of the hardest things about finding talent from the government side is really finding the right companies to work with. Can you provide any recommendations or advice on the government personnel that might be struggling through some really awesome problems, how they can find the right talent, find the right companies to work with. Yeah, we, that's something I did. I had to push myself <laughs> 10 years ago, we were starting with, but was to really network, go to industry days, attend a lot of webinars on government contracting, but meeting them where they are, they're required to get out in host industry days, there are a lot of the conferences like the AFSIA East and West and different things. And being able to send people to those is an investment in our company, but that's how you meet people. And that's probably how it works in the private sector too. So I've got a, if I'm a program manager, I've got these problems I need to solve and I'm looking for solutions. And that's why they're there doing that matchmaking on your own, following up. Sometimes it takes years of following up and getting information to them, but, and then hopefully something will come with it. And uh, you mentioned previously how you started on the more technical side and knowing a little mm -hmm. bit about your background, your bachelor's and master's in computer science, and then you transitioned to business. What has been some of the benefits of having both? And did you, was there, when you reflect back on your work prior to starting G2Ops, was there do you think or wish that you had learned some of the business insights maybe earlier in your technical career? I personally think it's very advantageous because you can understand what's going on. <laughs> you can set goals, expectations for the team. You can communicate with customers with the technical background. A lot of things I have to study up on before meetings because I'm not doing it all day, every day. But it's been very beneficial. But I think just in my career, I loved learning. So if 
I managed a department, so I treated it like my own little business, even though it was a department within a big company. So I've worked for public companies, private companies, startups, and manage, always manage the money like it's your own and learn a lot from the HR team, the legal team. So I just got exposed to a lot of things in my career, and I didn't realize at the time I was being shaped to run a business. But a lot of times people hear us say, how do you know about, how do you know about that and the payroll and things like that? I was just always interested in it and what other departments did and understanding it. And it really all came together here at G2 Ops. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed working with G2 Ops on the mission side and Right. Um, your insights here. And I know you mentioned to me before that you actually follow and listen to the podcast. So mm -hmm. I, the last question that we always try to leave with is why should people continue to listen to this podcast? This is one, it's interesting. I like that you have customers on there. You focused on the government side, but anytime you can pick up, even if it's one tidbit, that's going to help your company. We focus on growth security and brand. So if I can learn one thing, listening to your podcast that helps with any of those pillars, I've just made our company better. So always trying to learn from other people and you do a good job asking questions and everything. Truly an inspiring story. Always love talking to, to co-founders of other small businesses that are working with mission-focused organizations. Thank you so much, Tracy, for being on the show. All right. Bye-bye.